All the best games require spreadsheets. (laughs) Welcome to Cardboard and Wine, episode 29. I'm Mamie. And I'm Josh. Grab a glass, pull up a chair, and let's talk about some games. Today on the show, we walk the fine line between knowing enough and knowing too much in the dystopian dice placement game, Euphoria. Mamie, welcome back. Yeah, it's been a while. How long has it been since we were recording? I think it's been about six weeks. Oh, it's too long. It's too long, but we're back to it. The end of the school year, coupled with summer break and vacations and work, it's been a little chaotic, but we're back. Yeah, we're in the throes of the heat of summer. Yeah, although today wasn't bad. Today it rained, but that meant it was only 80 instead of 100 degrees. That's true. Uh, Every little bit helps. Well, we are cooling off with this warm red wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we would have done this one yesterday, but it worked out today since it was actually a little cooler. Well, what do I have in front of me? So tonight's wine is courtesy of our friend Sarah, who shares our love of a good solid Malbec. This is the 2017 Tierra Brisa Malbec. And so this one is from Argentina, and I love it. When I did my research on this one, there was a very detailed description. It said... The Tierra Brisa Malbec comes from a vineyard located in Mendoza, Argentina, altitude 2,400 feet. Manual harvest, late March, from stony and sandy soils. Maceration fermentation at 79 to 82 degrees Fahrenheit for 12 days. In contact with oak for three months. pH 3.8. Alcohol per volume 13.5%. Residual sugar 2.8 grams per liter. That's a lot of data. Yeah. And then it went into the description. Intense red color with violet shades, ripe red and black fruit, and supple tannins. Delivers a fresh, crisp, attractive finish packed with truffle, mocha, and vanilla notes. Ideal to have with grilled meat. Also combines perfectly with pasta, mild to spicy cuisine, and semi-hard cheeses. So I think I'm... I think I'm with them on the first paragraph. I like the objective data. Uh, The rest I would classify as marketing speak. I think you're probably right. I would say it pairs really well with a nice European board game. Well, luckily we have one of those. (laughs) Although technically the board game we're going to talk about tonight is an American board game. That's true. In the stylings of a European board game. You know, I actually wish more wines would provide this level of detail because maybe we could learn a little more about what we like. Maybe I prefer wine from grapes harvested in stony or sandy soil. How would I know? That's right. And I really like knowing the residual sugar because I sometimes might want to count calories. And I know that wine with a residual sugar of less than 10 grams per liter is lower in calorie. Than, lower in carbs. Yeah, lower in carbs than a lot of the others. I did look this up and uh, something in the two range would be considered dry. Not bone dry, but dry. I think that's what I like, dry but not bone dry. Well, it's very nice. So thank you to Sarah yes, for thank you, Sarah. Uh, bringing it over. wanted to say thank you to our Patreon supporters. And if you would like to support the show, you can go to cardboardandwine.com and click on the Become a Patron button or go to patreon.com slash cardboardandwine. And we would appreciate the support. Mamie, we have been playing quite a few board games that's true. since we recorded last. That's true. Even though we haven't been recording in the last few weeks, we've done lots of gaming. And there have been a number of times when evenings we probably could have recorded, we ended up playing games instead. Hopefully our listeners will forgive us for that. I mean, I think it's a pretty good trade. 
one of the things we mentioned in our last episode was that we weren't able to make it to Dice Tower Con. But in place of Dice Tower Con, we held Josh Con 4. That's right. It's like Dice Tower Con, except... In our house. In our house, and way fewer people. But there were a lot of people. I mean, how many people over the two days did we have? 16 or 17? Yeah, maybe that many, yeah. So it was fun. We played a lot of games with a lot of friends, um, had had some really good times. Uh, what were some, some highlights for you, Mamie? You know, I, I really love Wingspan, and I got to get that on the table twice, two different times. I for, think you taught it to and some I got new people. To, yeah, yeah, I got to teach it to my friend Charlotte and her husband, who are new to gaming with us, and uh, they both really liked it and kind of got to geek out on the bird info on the cards, and so that was super fun. That was definitely a memorable moment. And Mamie, I know you do not follow board gaming news like I do. That's true, I don't. But you will be happy to know, in a related note, that the Spiel des Jahres awards were given out this week, which is a set of German awards for the best board games, and Wingspan won the Kinderspiel des Jahres. I know Spiel des Jahres game of the year. What is the Kinder? Yeah, so my understanding is there are now three awards, and and so there's the Spiel des Jahres, which is sort of these days has been framed as more of a family game with wide appeal. And I have heard in Germany winning this award really fuels game sales around the Christmas holiday for families. Ah, interesting. Um, actually, the winner of that game is a game we also own, Just One. Oh, Just One is fun. That's the one we bought right before New Year's to That's play right. with our friends. That's right. Good party uh, game. Good party game. But Wingspan won the Kinderspiel de Jars, which is uh, classified as a game of the year for game enthusiasts. Ah, so a little more, more of a complex. gamer's game. Yeah, one that maybe wouldn't be best to play with your grandma on Thanksgiving afternoon, but for gamers, this is the game of the year. Um, would you agree with that? That's awesome. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, it's it's not a difficult game, but it's also not a party game. So it's not something that you would break out with just anybody, anytime. But I'm so pleased to see that it won that award. It deserves it. Definitely. And especially big congratulations to Elizabeth Hargrave and yes. Stonemeyer Games, which we are record we are reviewing a Stonemeyer game today on the show. That's right. We've been playing a lot of Stonemeyer games. Yeah. And so um, and all the people involved with Wingspan. Excited to see that. And as a scientist, I'm excited to see a game in the science biology realm win an award like this. Yeah, and as a feminist, excited to see a game designed by a woman. We need more of them out there. We do need more of that, for sure. But what else did we play? Let's see. Uh, so you oh, mentioned, we played so many things. So you mentioned you enjoyed playing some Wingspan. One thing I enjoyed at JoshCon was really what I typically enjoy when we have done JoshCons of the past, opportunity to play some games that are really historically some of my favorite games that I don't always have a chance to get to the table. I feel like so often on our regular game nights... I have a little bit of a tendency to be drawn to newer games to purchase and play. Uh, just occasionally. I, how many new games do we get this week? A few. A few. It's a problem. It is but a problem. it's a good problem. It's a good problem. <laughs> there are worse problems. There are certainly worse problems. But a consequence of that is oftentimes there are some really good games that I enjoy that don't always get as much table time as they deserve. So having a, a more intensive gaming experience like a JoshCon, we have the opportunity to break out some of these games. And so I really enjoyed uh, particularly playing three such games that I really, really love that I would say are just top 
classic games for me. And I got to play all three of them. So I got to play one of my favorite splatter games, The Great Zimbabwe, and two of my top, top favorite classic board games, Kalis and Agricola. I have a confession. Okay. I kind of, a little bit, maybe, enjoyed playing Agricola. It was not as awful as you thought it would be. It was not as awful as I thought it would be. I do think the cards make a difference. This was the first time in a while that we played with the occupation cards and the, what are the other ones called? The um, the minor improvements? Yeah, the minor improvement cards. And, and I do think it eases a little bit of the tension in that game. That they do good things for they you. They do. Usually the tension in that game is pretty much unbearable, but that eased it enough that it was actually fun. Well, and it should be known, when we, we first got Agricola, when it came out, back in the whatever year it came out, <laughs> I think it was in the 2000-somethings um, when we first got it. And, and back in those days, I would say Agricola at that time was probably the heaviest game that we that we owned. That's true. And so, as most folks might know, if they have the game Agricola, there is a family version of the game where basically you play the regular game, except you leave out all the cards, Back in those days, I think we were a little more intimidated by all of those cards, and there's so many of them, um, that we were content to play the game without them. But I would argue, similar to what you mentioned, Mamie, is the game is actually a little harder without the cards, because uh, as most people know who've played Agricola, the tension comes from this need to constantly feed your family. But the majority of these cards break the rules in your favor in special ways that actually help you to get more food. Turns out it's better to be a baker during the Dark Ages than a farmer. Well, that worked for you. Any any oh, occupation. For, like, being a farmer is the worst job you could possibly have. That's true. Uh, or, although, I think there were some people who had jobs where they could basically eat bricks. or <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, they had a job where they oh, made true. bricks. Oh, that's right. And then they had money, you know, I mean. Or chewing on sticks. or Yeah, yeah. But you know what I mean. In general, yeah. in that way, very thematic, right? It's a little easier to live if you have an income. Yeah. Well, we had a great time. We played with uh, a nice five-player game, which is just the way to play, in my opinion. It was fun. It was fun. And Kalis. You didn't play. I know. I didn't get to play Kalis. That was when I was teaching Wingspan, but I do want to play that one again soon. Another memorable gaming moment for me was, Mamie, you were kind enough last weekend to take the kids on a play date out of the house for a few hours. And Five I, hours. I think four hours <laughs> or so. And I had some people over to play a game of 1846. It was so funny. The kids came in and they ran right over to your computer to look at the spreadsheet to say, Dad won! <laughs> All the best games require a spreadsheet. <laughs> Amy, I've got to get you to play 1846 at some point. I can't wait till Chesapeake comes. I will play that one. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. But I had a blast playing it. And just so everybody knows, Mamie was invited to play. Oh, yes. She chose not to play. Well, the, we needed to get the kids out of the house. Okay, there you go. Someday, <laughs> someday. Excuses. All right, Mamie. Well, why don't we jump right in and talk about some games? Uh, but the first thing we want to do before we talk about our game of the week is we wanted to break a game out of The Cellar. All right, this week from The Cellar, we are going to talk about a game that we reviewed back on episode six in April of 2018. So that was over a year over ago. a year ago, and that game is Azul. Oh, Azul, yes. We've actually been playing Azul quite a bit lately, including playing with the kids. Yeah, you were out one evening with some friends, 
and I was tired of playing the usual games with the kids, <laughs> the usual kids' games. So I thought, you know what? Let's try Azul. And I think I would have been skeptical had I been here about their ability to kind of understand the strategy behind it. But you sent me a, a text that you guys were playing, and then the next text I got was of the scorecard in which both kids scored higher than you did. Yeah, I got beaten pretty <laughs> badly. Uh, my, my daughter, uh, who is nine, edged me out by one point, and my son, who is eight... Seven. Seven. My son, who is seven, <laughs> going on eight, uh, trounced me. Actually, he scored higher than I've ever scored. So I he think He is that, our gamer. He really is. I think that indicates what a good teacher I am. I mean, I do think you're an excellent teacher, but I also think it indicates that Jack is going to be a force to be reckoned with in our gaming lives. Well, I think what I can be hopeful of is that soon the kids will be my 18xx partners if you're not going to be. I think Jack will play 18xx I think he's ready. You. I think he's ready. One more year. Yeah. 1846. That'll be... <laughs> if you can play Azul, you can play 1846. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, so what, what I thought we could do is, is talk a little bit about how we feel about Azul a little over a year later from when we, we last reviewed it. So just to remind you, Mamie, a year ago, we had some very good things to say about Azul. Um, you said that you very much enjoyed playing it. You loved the, the pieces and the production. You had a little bit of concern that it's a game we might grow tired of over time. But all in all, you thought it was a strong game. You gave it a four out of five. I said that I thought it was a perfectly executed games from the components in the tiles, the bag, the board were all excellent, and it was just the right amount of strategy and complexity for a 20-minute game. So I actually gave it maybe a 5 out of 5. Perfect score. All right. Where do you feel like you would put it now, today? You know, I have to admit, as many new games as we have, uh, Azul doesn't make it out as much as as it probably could. But I think I can say every time I've played it, including in the past week, I've played it several times, I just have such a good time. And I think, wow, this is a really neat game. And and whether I'm playing it with some of our gamer friends or our now our children or even brand new gamers, I feel like everyone, it's approachable. Uh, the pieces just draw you in. Um, the scoring, it takes a little bit of time to wrap your mind around. Um, it's, it's always it's useful, I think, to have someone familiar with the game just to help with that transition. But I'm, I'm going to stick with a five. Nice. I think I would stick with a four. I mean, I, I agree with everything you said. Actually, one of the games, along with Wingspan, that I taught our friends at JoshCon was Azul, and they loved it. Like Before they left, they were like, we need to buy a copy of this. Uh, and it is it is a lot of fun. And we haven't gotten bored with it, but we haven't played it that much. It has sat on the shelf quite a bit over the course of the last year. So I, I still give it a four. I think it's a great game. There's a lot that I really love about it. It's just not maybe not quite enough to it to rank a five for me. I hear you. I hear you. I'm thinking for me, a five for what it is. I, I can see yeah. that. Makes yeah. sense. All right, Mamie. Well, why don't we transition and talk about our game of the week, Euphoria. Euphoria was designed by Jamie Stegmeier and Alan Stone with art from Jackie Davis and was published by Stonemeyer Games in 2013. In Euphoria, you lead a team of workers and recruits 
which are represented by dice and cards as you attempt to navigate your way through a dystopian world in which there are four primary factions that control the markets and the production of commodities you are going to need to survive and cope with your existence. At its core, Euphoria is a worker placement game where each of your workers is a six-sided die where the number on the die face represents the knowledge or awareness that worker has about the world around her or him. Now, in most games, having smarter workers would be a good thing, but not in Euphoria. If a worker gets too smart, they will realize how bleak their situation is and they'll run away. The game consists of placing your workers in various action spaces among the four faction areas to gain commodities of food, water, electricity, or bliss, which is totally not drugs, to gain raw material resources like gold, metal, or copper, or to uncover some artifacts of the previous world. Importantly, workers can also help in the construction of new market spaces and gain stars, which ultimately is how you win the game, by being the first to place all 10 of your stars onto the board or onto your recruit cards. Each player will have a small number of recruits that align with one of the four factions. These recruits will give their player a special ability during the game, but importantly, if their faction becomes powerful enough during the game, they'll gain stars and speed their player onto victory. All right, Mamie, before we jump into our review, I will give a little disclaimer that this was a review copy that was sent to us by Stonemeyer Games to talk about on the show. You know, we always keep our eye on any game that's coming from Stonemeyer Games because they're really elegantly and thoughtfully produced. With any of their games, production quality is going to be top-notch. The rule book, the graphic design, it's all going to be really well thought out. You know, we really enjoy Scythe and, of course, Wingspan, which I can't stop talking about. So we were, you know, pretty hopeful about Euphoria when it arrived. So I'll say that I tend to prefer a deeper game. And I would say most of the Stonemaier games we've played, I would put squarely in my definition of a medium weight game. I think there's a little bit of flexibility when we're comparing Scythe versus Viticulture versus Wingspan. Um, but I would say Euphoria falls into that camp. I would... I think it's a quintessential uh, medium weight game. There's definitely some strategy and depth to it, but it's I don't know that I would classify it as a, a brain burner, and it's certainly not going to compare to that 1846 experience <laughs> that you deftly avoided. That's true. I mean, medium <laughs> weight games are my jam. So, you know, Euphoria falls right into sort of the weight that I really, really enjoy in a game. Yeah, so you alluded to it, but why don't we just formally talk about the components of Euphoria? Yeah, I mean, as you described a little bit, this game has all the components. There's a game board, but then there's also three different types of cards, so many different wooden components, and assorted cardboard pieces. So, you know, as we hope for, they're all great quality. I especially love the dice. They're basic D6s, but they're designed to kind of look like a gear, kind of gears going together, and it just spices them up, and they're really, really pretty colors. The green one is kind of a lime shade that I really enjoy. Um, yeah, I will say with I would say all Stonemeyer games that I've played, I love the color choices of the bits and the way the painted wooden components have sort of this muted and understated color color choices. Right, they could just be them. primary colors, but they're not. They're not. They're great, and even though they're green or purple, they're very pleasant yeah. shades of of those colors and blues. It's definitely well thought out. Definitely. 
So the game board, which is kind of the centerpiece of the game, has a lot going on. There's four different factions. There's commodities and resources. Um, but the symbology is actually pretty clear and pretty easy to understand. There's a great little rules summary that comes with the game and a quick reference guide that helps expedite setup. There are ethical dilemma cards that every player gets, and the back of those actually has a reference of the different commodities and resources. So it kind of helps keep everything straight. Yeah, and Mamie, you mentioned expediting setup. One thing I will mention is the copy we have is the most recent edition that has inserts from game trays. And I have to say, I am in love. This is my first game with the game trays components. That's trays with a Z. Trays with a Z. Trays. Uh, but these are sort of molded plastic containers that have these snap-on clear lids. And oh my goodness, they are so wonderful. Uh, the lids snap firmly into place, and so they hold everything in their spot while the box is being moved around and stored. And what's really cool is there are two separate but identical smaller trays uh, that you can put on each side of the table that have all the different resource bits. And so you just pop those out, put one on the left of the board, one on the right of, bo- right of the board, and everybody has easy access to all those components. It's a really nice touch, and, and it makes setup really a breeze for this game. You know, it's those little touches, like the different color scheme and those amazing game trays that really kind of elevate Stonemeyer games to the next level. All right. Well, the components are one thing, but the gameplay is also important. So let's talk about the gameplay of Euphoria. And, and I think I'll start for this one. So I will say my experience and what I've observed, we've played this game with numerous different people um, in our game groups. And I'll say when you sit down for your first game of Euphoria it's a little intimidating. You kind of stare at the board <laughs> and it's a worker placement game and there's these four faction areas and there are all these different places that you can you can set your your dice workers down. And I would say I had no clue what to do. Yeah. <laughs> the first the first time I started. It's a little overwhelming. So I, I don't know that this is necessarily a negative thing, but just an experience that it wasn't necessarily obvious what you should do and why at the very beginning. And again, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing at all, nor do I think this game is overly complicated. But it took, for at least for me, it took playing the game once to really get that, oh, that's what you need to do. And maybe not even playing once, but three-fourths through the first game. Um, now, I'll say my second game, I was much more focused. And in fact, depending on what recruits you have, it's perfectly viable to ignore certain parts of the board entirely. Yeah, I would say that's one of the things that you had to, I had to kind of wrap my brain around is that you don't really want to try to do everything. In fact, you can't. It's not possible. That could actually be a bad strategy. Right. One, one interesting aspect of Euphoria, and, and one that has some similarities with another game that we really like, Teho Tawakin, the workers in this game are dice. So the higher value on the dice indicates higher knowledge of the worker. And one other, one other thing that takes a little bit of time to wrap your mind around, especially if you've played lots of other games, is that actually having a knowledgeable worker is a bad thing. Yeah. And for me, it always seems to turn out bad. Maybe it's the teacher in me, but my workers always end up too knowledgeable. And if they're too knowledgeable, they actually run away. So you lose them. 
So anytime you take a new worker from the supply or workers from the board back into your supply, you have to roll them all and add up the total of their value plus your general knowledge level, which is indicated on a track on the board. And if that total is ever greater than or equal to 16, your most knowledgeable worker leaves and then you have to spend another action at some point and some other resources in order to get them back. Yeah, so... I would not say this is a huge implication during the game on a consistent basis because that's just for you. It, it is for me. <laughs> well, I'd say most of the time. I don't know if it's ever happened to you. That's true. Maybe not. I'm sure it happened at least once. <laughs> uh, you know, most of the time you have some workers on the board, and and you'll be well under the limit. But uh, it it does creep into your decision making later in the game in interesting ways as you acquire more workers, and you have to decide if you really want to use your action to take all the workers back. In which case, you have to roll them all and risk rolling too many high numbers and losing one. That being said, if you do have all four workers, and so four is the maximum number of workers you can have, you start with two, and you have the ability to get two more during the game. But if you have all four workers and you're lucky enough to roll lower numbers, it's really handy to have four turns where you can place workers without having to burn a turn to get them back. Yeah, I mean, we should also mention that one cool feature is that if you ever roll the same number on multiple workers, then you get to place them all on one turn. So rolling doubles is great. Yeah, so what do you think about that? It seems random, but I don't well, dislike it. I guess it. technically it is random. I mean, it's... Well, dice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems kind of like an add-on. Yeah, you know, I'll say that that was one rule that I wasn't totally sure about because most of the time you put one worker out. And it actually can be fairly consequential if let's say you bring three workers back and you roll them and two of them have the same number well now on a subsequent turn the two workers with the same number you can just basically take two actions you can place them both out in one turn which if that happens towards the end of the game because it actually gets fairly competitive yeah, it can be really powerful of the timing of, of trying to get those 10 stars out um, having an extra turn can be pretty powerful for something that comes down to a random dice roll. And if you happen to be like Josh and you frequently are able to manage to roll doubles and you're playing against someone like me who frequently manages to roll really high numbers and has to lose a dice, I just it can be a big swing. You wake up in the middle of the night, I'm just practicing rolling <laughs> dice. I'm so good at rolling dice. Uh, I will say this though. So in the rule book, uh, there's actually an optional rule, a variant rule, where in order to use that double placement or, or multiple, and, and actually we should say if you roll three workers of the same number, you can place all three of them out. Um, but there is a, an optional rule in the rule book that says if you take advantage of that, you actually have to lose uh, a morale every time you, you do that. And the morale is directly tied to your hand size. So, and, and I'll say this, so it's an optional rule in the base game, but I was perusing, there's a Euphoria, a Euphoria expansion that just came out recently, and in those rules, it mandates that as a rule. So to place an additional worker, you have to actually lose a morale for I every think I additional like that. worker. Yeah. We might have to try that next time. I think we'll have to try that. All right, Mamie, so what do you think about the, the theme of Euphoria? I mentioned that uh, the subtitle of Euphoria is to is build a better dystopia. What do you like? What do you think about the dystopian theme of Euphoria? You know, the theme is really clever. Um, actually, I would say it, it does kind of provide some interesting story arc in some instances. The market tiles are my favorite. They have really clever and funny names. And it's really fun to sort of be able to think about recruiting new workers by either using electricity, the old uh, Frankenstein way, or blasting them with water. 
it's clever and I, I like dystopian fiction, so I'm kind of drawn to that theme. And I feel like this is one game where the theme actually is is fairly well played out. A lot of games, you know, kind of sort of have theme, but it's attached to the side. And I really feel like the theme of this game goes throughout. Yeah, it's kind of fun as you're playing the game with the theme. I mean, I, I don't think there's ever been a time where we've played and a player goes to the spot where you get extra workers by providing electricity or water that we don't get a little chuckle out of shocking or blasting our worker with water, uh, which somehow increases their morale. And then, you know, all these market tiles have just such clever names, like the the Center for Reduced Literacy or the, <laughs> the Plaza of Immortalized Humility. Uh, yeah, they're, just they're really, funny. Really fun. Although um, I'm glad we don't live in that world. Although maybe if there was enough bliss, I wouldn't mind. Yeah, the bliss. <laughs> yeah. Bliss is definitely not drugs. Bliss, totally not drugs. Totally not drugs. Uh, <laughs> So, Mamie, what's your favorite thing about Euphoria? You know, I actually think that theme kind of is my favorite thing about the game. It's really clever. It's really kind of funny. I I like the the fact that it is carried out throughout all the different cards and throughout, you know, the 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 artifacts are like used balloons or a baseball glove and you can kind of imagine this futuristic society where they're like, "Oh, what is this magical thing that I found?" And I, you know, remnants from a remnants, happy yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um so I I really like that. It kind of draws me in to the game, I think. I mean, also the components are amazing. What about you? No, I agree. The The theme is is really unique and interesting and well implemented throughout the game and the components. I totally agree. Um, I think one thing that I like about the game is this is a game where it really is a race game to a certain extent in that it, it's truly a race to 10 stars. Every player has 10 stars and whoever puts them out first wins. And compared to some other Stonemeyer games, this is even more the case. So like compared to Scythe, for example, where placing a certain number of stars out triggers the end game. Now, this is it. But that is that doesn't necessarily mean you'll win the game. And that's similar to uh, Viticulture as well. You right. cross a certain point threshold, but just because you're the one who got there first doesn't necessarily mean you'll be the one who ends up winning the game. Here, however, um, it really is first to put out the 10 stars. And, you know, as as one player or two players start getting close or you yourself start getting close, you can kind of feel a little bit of that tension of the game kind of ramps up. There's a definite increase in that tension from the beginning of the game when everybody has all their stars in front of them to where one or two players get six, seven stars out. Everybody's kind of looking around and every turn feels a little more consequential. And I, I like that. I like that game mechanism. That's fun to me. I can see that. And it's very satisfying to plan out a really cool turn where you're going to get three stars at once and somebody else has eight or nine stars and you go, aha, and you place three out and you win the game. That's pretty satisfying. Maybe anything you don't like about Euphoria? Well, it's funny because I think what I don't like is when you're on the other side of that. <laughs> I think there's there's a couple things. One, I think that story arc can be really great and it makes the end really exciting but i think sometimes the beginning can be a little draggy and a little boring at the beginning as as things are sort of getting started it can feel like like a not a lot is happening and the other thing that i think is really probably my my main pet peeve with the game is is the randomness of dice rolls it can be really frustrating when you think you have everything planned out you're like okay i'm going to do this and then you roll and you end up losing a dice. And for some reason that 
has happened to me a lot when we play this game. And so I find myself ending up fairly frustrated because I'm not getting the dice rolls that I need to do the things that I need to do. And so that, you know, I, I, I think I've discovered I don't love randomness. I'd like to be able to like have a strategy and make a plan and execute that plan. And if somebody else's plan is better than mine, awesome. Good for them. They deserve to win. But when who wins and who loses is based on the luck of the dice, it's kind of frustrating to me. You know a game with no randomness during gameplay? 1846. Okay. <laughs> you also don't like games that take four plus hours. Right. I think I need a game with no randomness or little ra- I mean, some a little randomness is okay. We but should play Kalos. Yeah, I do really enjoy Kalos. I need to play that one again. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. And, and certainly you have lost a worker at a very frustrating moment, uh, even, even when the odds should have been in your favor. Right. You, it wasn't like I rolled you were two sixes. And, and, you know, I think the flip side, too, where even if you mitigate it a little bit with losing a morale, um, when it gets down towards the end of the game where every turn is so important and then a player happens to have a lucky roll and they roll doubles or even triples, that can almost seal a victory, um, getting to place two or three workers out at one time. And, and, you know, when you've devoted, this is not a long game, but when you've devoted an hour or an hour and a half and a victory comes down to a lucky or unlucky dice roll, that can be frustrating. I think that's really what it is. It's the time to randomness balance, right? I don't mind the randomness in a game that takes 30 minutes to play. Like strike. Yeah. I mean, strike is all (laughs) random. It's super fun. And I'm totally fine with that. But in a game that, you know, you're devoting this time to, you have a strategy, but then the randomness is just keeping you from being able to execute it. It's really frustrating. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair point. Um, I think one thing for me is I've played this game, and and I will say that when I first played my very first play of this game, um, I didn't really like it that much. You know, I think part of that was, as I mentioned, it took one play for me to really understand what I was trying to do and how the different types of resources, the commodities and the, uh, the resources and the artifacts sort of played together to help accomplish uh, putting stars out. But I'll say even in subsequent plays, though they were certainly more competitive and I had, had a lot more fun. And even though the theme was cool, I feel like the actual actions and the mechanics of the game with the theme, they all didn't necessarily come together and grab me um, the way some other games Dude, does that make sense? Yeah, it's just it's there's something that's just a little bit missing that's not as engaging as it could be. You know, to a certain degree, once you learn the game, you know, you can certainly see that okay, I need to get some commodities. Maybe I need to get some lightning bolts so that I can then uh, get some resources. So maybe I can flip over one, build one of the markets, and and place a star on it. And, you know, and, and to some degree, that's sort of similar to, you know, a worker placement game like Agricola that I talked about I really enjoy. I mean, some of those actions really are put a worker out and get some wood, put a worker out and get some clay. But I think I feel like in a game like that, the actions that I'm doing seem to integrate with the theme. And I feel more like I'm moving towards accomplishing this bigger thing that feels um, linked to the theme in a way that with Euphoria, I didn't necessarily connect my actions and the game mechanics with the theme. And so I think I was left with not feeling quite as engaged as, as maybe with some other worker placement games I've played, like Agricola um, or, or even like Viticulture, um, for example. 
I wonder if that's almost because of the complexity and how many different options there are for for ways to play and resources and commodities and well, you know, I think maybe it's this, Mamie. So as as we're talking about, I'm trying to flesh this out into coherent thought. With a game like Agricola, again, to compare it to that, you know, yes, some of the actions are very similar in that I'm going to go to the wood space and get the wood. I'm going to go to the clay space and get the clay. But I know I need the wood to build the fence, and I need the clay to build the clay room, and I need the reed to do the roof of the... Um, whereas this, mechanically speaking, there's really no thematic difference between I'm going to go to the electricity faction and get the lightning bolts versus go over here to the farming faction and get the food. Functionally, they kind of work exactly the same way. It just depends on, am I trying to, do I have more recruits from the electricity faction or the food faction? Um, They're not really different otherwise. And so I think because of that, the individual actions don't feel as interesting or linked to the theme as in some other worker placement games that I enjoy a little bit more. Yeah, I could see that. They don't necessarily have meaning and kind of direct connection in a linear path. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I could see that. So, so Mamie, uh, when would we break this game out? You know, I think to some degree the complexity in the gameplay and in the the time needed to teach, because there are so many different things that you can do on the board. I don't think that this is one we'd break out um, with friends that aren't kind of already sold on those fairly heavy medium weight games. Or worker placement games. Yeah, I don't think, you know, I can't see playing this one with the kids. And honestly, we have so many things on our shelf that I, I can't see this being the first thing I'd reach for very often. And that might change. We've played it a lot lately. So maybe, you know, after a couple months, I might want to break it out again. But right now, I feel like there's a lot of other things that I would pick off the shelf before I'd pick this one up. What about you? Yeah, no, I think I would agree with I would agree with all of that. And as we mentioned, there is an expansion that came out that I know adds some new things and changes some other things around. I know you love a good expansion. I love a good expansion. So I would be willing to to give it a shot with that expansion. And, you know, that being said, I have... Have you already ordered the expansion? I have not ordered the expansion. Good boy. That being said, I, I think I have enjoyed this game more every time I've played it. And I think that's had a lot to do with members of our game group have gotten more familiar with the game as well. And so, you know, I had a pretty good time playing this game with five members of our game group who all had played it at least once and it was a really competitive game and and that's actually that actually brings up one last point that I think we should make and, and that has to do with player count so um, so technically this game plays from two to six players so one it's great to have a game that plays with six players because not every game does we have played this a couple times with two and with yeah. two I did not I did not find this to be a great two-player game and part of that is because some of the spaces, some of the interesting decisions have to, with regard to building those markets or some of the action spaces where different things happen depending on the cumulative value of dice as more and more dice go on the spaces, a lot of those decisions are just more interesting if there are more players that are contributing. Yeah, when it's two players, it feels like you're kind of either directly going to help the other person or hurt the other person. It's a little more maybe antagonistic. Yeah, and it almost seemed like with two players, you know, even in thinking about, well, what factions should I focus on on developing um, or choosing? Well, Mamie's doing those factions, so I don't want to help Mamie, so I'm going to just stick with 
helping out the factions that I'm aligned with. However, if you have a four, five, or six-player game, well, there's only four factions. They're all there. So there's a little more, or there's a lot more overlap with, okay, well, I've got recruits aligned with the Euphorian faction, and this other player also does. So we're kind of working together. We're both benefiting from sort of boosting that faction on the allegiance track. So so I think it's more interesting to have that sort of overlap in in player goals where some of your actions are kind of helping other players and so you're aware of that so I want to help them but not too much. This is certainly in my opinion a better game with more players. I agree. I definitely would not go to this for two players but for five or six, sure, cuz we don't have many things that play well with those large player counts. All right, Mamie. Well, why don't we give our final thoughts and why don't you introduce uh, or why don't you describe our rating scale? Yeah. So here at Cardboard and Wine, we use a rating scale that is related to our favorite beverage. So number one, a rating of a one is an empty bottle, sad, disappointing, ready to go in the recycling. A rating of a two is a two buck chuck. It's if you don't have anything else to drink or to play, it might do. Three, it's like a wine in a box. There are things about it that you like, but things about it that you don't. A four is like this nice Malbec, easy to enjoy regularly. We've poured a glass. We're looking forward to enjoying some more. And a five is like a big, bold California cab. It's only going to get better with age. So what do you think about Euphoria, Josh? All right, Mamie, I went back and forth with this. I think after my very first play, I was really not sure about this game. You would have given it a one? Uh, no, not a one. I mean, this is certainly, uh, it's a beautiful game. It's a beautiful production and has some interesting mechanics. I just, like I mentioned, it didn't grab me as much. And I think still part of my concern with this game and the thing that keeps me reaching for it regularly on my shelf after quite a few plays is, is what we talked about a little bit. I mean, I love worker placement games. And actually, I love the interesting usage of dice in unique ways as workers. I think that's really, really fascinating and and provides some interesting depth of play. But I think the fact that the actions I have available to me to take are so abstract and from faction to faction are, are really identical. They just get resource A versus resource B, which sort of work in similar ways. Um, I think the decisions, the depth of decisions is a little less interesting and and doesn't do as good a job of as maybe it could have at integrating into what's really an interesting theme and one that's really well done with the design decisions in the game. And so uh, I think a little more cohesiveness between the actions available and the game mechanisms and the theme would have boosted it. That being said, as I mentioned, I've had more fun every time I've played it, especially as our game group's gotten more familiar with it. I really loved it with higher player counts. So, you know, I think because of that, this is a this is definitely a three game for me. There's certainly things I like about Euphoria and the production is gorgeous and that certainly counts for something. I love the way it looks and and I love popping the box open and those game trays. <laughs> so I think I am going to, to give it a three. How about you? It's also a three for me. I mean, I think, as you said, there are things that I really like about the game. And then there are a few things for me. It's probably more about the role that chance and that that dice roll has. That's one of the things that I just have found to be frustrating. And maybe it's just that I've been really unlucky, but 
it's not was it wasn't just one game. It's been quite a few games where I felt like the dice roll made a difference, in, and sometimes in my favor. But it just almost felt like not as as satisfying of a victory. Um, and so for me, I'm I don't love that, but I love the production. I love the theme, and and like you said, I've enjoyed it a little bit more as we've played it a little bit more. So I think it's a three. All right. Well, that sounds great. Well, Mamie, it's been great to be back in the studio with you tonight. I know. Hopefully it won't be another six weeks. I know. We've got lots of great things we could discuss. That's right. So we just need to get in here and do it. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to Cardboard and Wine, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. For show notes, links, and other fun info about the games we discuss on the show, you can visit our website at CardboardandWine.com. If you have feedback on the show or suggestions for a future show, you can send us a tweet at Board and Wine. See photos of the games we play on Instagram at Cardboard and Wine or email us cardboardandwine at gmail.com. You can also jump into our guild on Board Game Geek. You could also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you and it'll help new listeners find the show. All right, Mamie. Until next time. Cheers, cheers and, and happy, happy gaming. gaming.